0: Good morning. It's great to see everybody on this incredibly average Sunday. Maybe the most average Sunday of the entire year. There is nothing that anyone should ever get excited about that might be happening later today. There's nothing to be nervous about that's going to happen later today. I mean, literally today is the most normal Sunday of the entire year. This has happened now three times in my lifetime. The first of which I do not remember. I was so young for. Um, the second one I remember pretty well, and on this third one, the thing that I am thankful for is that Joe Montana is not on the other team this time. So um, you know, I thought maybe we'd do something a little different today and just have a special prayer service, um, <laughs> but since I'm not worried about anything that's happening today, it's just as normal as it can be. So glad that you guys are here. For those of you that are guests with us, thanks for choosing to worship with us today. If you don't know this, I am from Cincinnati, Bengals fan most of my life. Um, hidden most of uh, my, certainly, adult life, um, but really proud of the local team today and so hopefully things turn out well. But if you are a guest with us, we would love to connect with you. The easiest way to do that is to text the word WELCOME to 817-755-1668. If you don't get it on the screen, it is on a sticker on the seat back in front of you. We'd just like to connect with you and find out how we could uh, minister to you and, and serve you and your family, be an encouragement to you, because the thing that we want to do is to help your faith come alive so that your faith begins to be a determining factor in everything that you do. Because faith is not just showing up to church on Sunday morning, we're going to talk a little bit about that today, but it is lived out in our lives. And so I'm really glad that you're here. Let me pray for us and we'll jump into our message, week two of our series on the study of the life of Abraham. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, um, as we come before you, I I do pray that um, we would be able to hear from you today. That we wouldn't be distracted by things that are taking place around us or you know, plans that we might have later or anything. But God, that we would just for a few minutes, the next 30 minutes or so, just be able to concentrate on you and what you would have for us. And uh, Father, in the midst of our time, I, I pray that you would strengthen our faith, that you would draw us close to yourself. Uh, Father, I recognize as we gather together today, there are things that are on Uh, Many of our hearts that are weighing us down, and I pray, Father, that you would extend grace and mercy and meet every one of those needs. Thanks for the promise um, that you have given to us, that you're always with us, that you understand what's happening in our our lives, and that when we don't understand, you do, and you're sovereignly in control of everything. And um, So, Father, again, I just pray that you would take care of us. Thanks for the hope of um, just the reality that our lives are in your very hands. So again, Father, as we spend some time in your word, I pray that you would speak to us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. The world is filled with a lot of crazy. Sometimes that exists in our own lives. Like we could look at the events that happen in our lives and it's like, man, like this is crazy. Um, Oftentimes that crazy exists around us in the world Like, I don't know if you've had this experience where you've maybe seen a product advertised either on TV or or maybe somewhere on social media and you thought to yourself, like, that's crazy. There's no way that that could do what they say it does. Or like, that's crazy. Like, no, there's no way that anybody would ever buy that thing. But yet, obviously, some people don't think it's crazy because they buy whatever that thing is. I'll give you an example show my age a little bit. So for those of you that are around my age, maybe you are or, or a little bit older, maybe you remember the, the Ronco infomercials that were on TV all the time. Like I, don't, I guess the guy's name was Ron. I don't have any idea, but he tried to sell everything. But the worst of those to me was the spray paint that you would spray on your bald spot that magically caused people to think he had a full head of hair. Like I remember seeing that like as a teenager and thinking, that's crazy. There's literally no way that you can spray paint on your bald spot and have people think you have hair. Like that's insane. But not everybody thought it was crazy because people bought it. And I think for a few months it was really popular. I remember seeing that infomercial a lot on TV. And then at some point people realized that this spray paint was water soluble, so that as soon as you started to sweat, the paint would drip down the back of your neck and behind your ears. Probably find some pictures of that, like it was gross, but also crazy. But yet, people bought it. Uh, Na- my son Nathan, a uh, freshman in high school, he plays baseball, and so he's played baseball his entire life growing up. And, and with baseball, I don't know if it's true in other sports or not, but certainly this is the case with baseball, is that there are always new gadgets, trainers, swing aids teaching systems that you can buy into that magically fix your swing. And a lot of that stuff I've looked at over the years and thought, like, that's crazy. There's no way that that does any good at all. But again, not everybody thinks they're crazy because obviously people are buying this stuff. And I will admit over the years there have been a couple of times where I've probably gotten suckered into some stuff, bought some things to help Nathan a little bit, and probably I'm the crazy one to a lot of people but there's a lot of stuff that's just really crazy. You find like people are buying into this stuff, and it's not just you new know, products that we buy or something like that. Oftentimes, it's in the world of religion too. Yeah, you know, over the last couple of years, I've seen um, some documentaries about like strange churches, sometimes or strange religions. Some of those have even covered uh, cults that we look at. And most of the time, I've seen a few of them, and, and I think to myself, like, how is it that anybody buys into that stuff? I mean, it's just crazy. But yet, people follow those different religions or practices or whatever they are. The, you know, the, the most extreme example is what happened in the Jonestown Massacre. You remember the story Jim Jones convinced all these people to move into Jonestown, this place that he made, I think it's like in some Central American country or something like that, and then at some point uh, convinced everyone to drink the poison Kool-Aid, so like literally drink the Kool-Aid so that they would die in their spirits. They had to do it at the right time so that their spirits would hitch a ride on the comet as it flew by, right? Like to me, I hear that and I think, man, that, that's crazy. But yet the people did it. And you wonder how. But then when you stop and think about it, I mean, the reality is, like, faith in general can be crazy. Now, For most of us, our belief system, our faith, it doesn't seem crazy to us because it's what we believe, it's what we've become convinced of, it's what we trust in, it's what we rely on, and so we believe that it's true, and so it doesn't seem crazy to us, but yet... You know, for somebody that doesn't believe the same things that we do, somebody on the outside of faith, they could look at our faith system and think, okay, you believe God came in flesh, died, and rose again from the dead. Like, that's pretty crazy. And then when you think about all that could be labeled into, you know, a category of Christianity with all kinds of different beliefs, all kinds of different practices, like, you can see how people on the outside of the Christian faith would say, look, you all are crazy. And so in a world that's filled with crazy, how do we know what faith really looks like? So this is week two of our series on the life of Abraham. We started last week by looking at the call that God placed on Abraham's life and the promise that he gave him at the very beginning, which is a promise of land, seed, and blessing. So God told Abraham to leave his father and mother and go to the land that God would show him. And what we talked about last week was how oftentimes that these faith heroes that we look at can In our minds, become like superheroes, which gives us a wrong idea of faith sometimes. Like faith is this trust where there's never a doubt, never a fear, those kinds of things. But that's not what faith in the real world looks like. And so today, we're gonna kind of continue with that same theme by looking at the very next event in Abraham's life. So last week, we kind of left off Abraham in the land of promise that God showed him. So he got there, God said, This is it. But then we talked at the end of the message how Abraham then traveled to Egypt, and so that's where we're going to be today. So if you do have a, a Bible with you, I invite you to turn to that passage, it's in Genesis chapter 12. Genesis 12, we're looking today at verses 10 through 20. Genesis 12, 10 through 20, if you don't have a Bible with you, it'll be on the screen as I read it, or if you are a Version Bible app user, you can navigate your way to our live event, follow along there, There's a, all the notes are in there, those kinds of things, so it's really helpful. Here's what it says, though, Genesis chapter 12, starting in verse 10. There was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to stay there for a while because the famine in the land was severe. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, Look, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me but let you live. Please say, You're my sister, so it will go well for me because of you. And my life will be spared on your account. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh. So the woman was taken to Pharaoh's household. He treated Abram well because of her. And Abram acquired flocks and herds, male and female donkeys, male and female slaves, and camels. But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his household with severe plagues because of Abram's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh sent for Abram and said, What have you done to me? Why didn't you tell me she was your, your, why, did you, why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her as my wife? Now, here is your wife. Take her and go. And then Pharaoh gave the men orders about him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. And one of the big problems with this passage is that what takes place in this passage is so foreign to us, we're not really sure exactly how to take what we read. And apply it to our lives. Because the reality is, I I don't think that we'll ever find ourselves in a situation like the one that Abram faced in this passage. So as a result of that, we could come up with all kinds of things as potential applications that I would look at and say, You know what? Like, that's crazy. That's not what God wants us to do. That's not what this passage is teaching. But yet at the same time, this is an event that really does help us to understand what faith is real faith in the real world really looks like. And so what I want to do today is give you three things that this passage is not teaching us about living a life of faith, and then three things that this passage and this event does teach us about living a life of faith. Okay, so first, what is this passage not teaching us? This passage, number one, is not teaching us that difficult situations call for situational ethics. So what I mean by that is, That what this passage is not teaching is that if you find yourself in a really challenging spot, you don't really know exactly what to do, white lies or exaggerating or fudging on the truth a little bit is okay. That is not what this passage is teaching. It's not teaching that difficult situations call for situational ethics. Well, understand what's happening in the passage. So there's a famine in the lands, what we read at the very beginning. And this is actually something that happens quite often in the Old Testament. We often read about a famine in the land of Israel, or at this point, described as the land of Canaan. And then we read about people going to Egypt in search of food. The reason that people would go to Egypt is because Egypt had the Nile River. And so, as a result of having the Nile River, it wasn't nearly as dependent upon seasonal rainfall as other areas, other um, places near the region were at the time i mean in fact the reason that egypt was the world power at this period in history is because they had the nile river and so abraham decides because there's a famine in the land we're going to go to egypt in search of food but before they get there he turns to his wife sarah and says hey when we get to egypt we need to say that you're my sister because if we say that you're my wife, they're going to kill me and take you. But if we say that you're my sister, which was like a half-truth because she was, in fact, Abraham's half-sister. So it wasn't a complete lie, but certainly not the truth. Hey, if we say that you're my sister, then they're going to treat me well because of you. And so they get to Egypt. They recognize Sarah's beauty. And they say, that's great. Pharaoh says, I'm going to take you as my wife. Abraham hears a bunch of animals um, and you can have all this stuff as a dowry, basically. And so when we understand what happens at the end, it's really tempting for us to say, well, man, must Abraham, what he did must have been the right thing. He found himself in a, a difficult situation, and so he chose to do it. It was a hard choice, but yeah, he chose to fudge on the truth a little bit. It worked out in the end, so it must be okay. But again, what this passage is not teaching is that difficult situations call for situational ethics. We should not look at this passage and say, man, white lies are okay, exaggerating is okay, fudging on the truth is okay. The reason that I say that is because of what we read in the Sermon on the Mount, something that Jesus said in Matthew 5.37. The Sermon on the Mount is all about kingdom ethics. So for Jesus, he is talking about in the entire sermon, as his followers, here is how we are supposed to live. And in Matthew 5.37, Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. A couple of verses prior, he's talking about the practice of oath-making. So at the time of Jesus, if you were going to do something, like, hey, I'm going to promise somebody that I'm going to do something, you would make an oath. Typically, that meant, like, 75% chance I'm going to do it. If I just say I'm going to do it, that's like 50-50, but if I make an oath, it's like 75-25 that I'm actually going to follow through and do it, or you could swear by the Lord, and if you swore by the Lord, then you're really going to do it because basically what you're saying is, hey, if I don't do this, then I'm asking God to bring condemnation upon my life, and so when people did that, it's like they're really serious, like for sure you can trust me in this, and so Jesus said, stop doing that, don't make oaths, don't swear by the Lord, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Be somebody who is trustworthy. Like always just tell the truth. And so because of what Jesus said Matthew 5:37 we can't look back at this and say, well, situational ethics, uh, difficult situations call for situational ethics because we are supposed to be people of character. The second thing that this passage is not teaching us is that if things turn out well in the end, then it means that God has blessed the means. Okay, so the second thing that this passage is not teaching us, if it turns out well in the end, that God has blessed the means. Again, think about the situation that faced Abram. So he says, hey, Sarah, we're going to tell the Egyptians that you're my sister. They recognize her beauty. Pharaoh sees that and says, hey, come and... Be my wife, right? This is great. It's going to work out really well. And so, but God then steps in and brings about a plague on Pharaoh's household so that the marriage cannot be finalized. And here's what's crazy to me is somehow Pharaoh figured it out. It doesn't tell us how he figured it out, but somehow he realized that what happened to him and his family was as a result of Sarah. So he went to, back to Abraham and said, hey, why would you do this? Why would you say she's your sister when she's really your wife? You guys get out of here and take all of your stuff with you. So what happens is I'm arguing Abraham Abram here did something wrong, but yet in the end he benefits from doing what is wrong. And so it would be really easy then to look at it and say, well, wait a minute, maybe because God blessed what happened in the end, then the means justify the ends. It doesn't matter how you get there, as long as the end is good, you can do whatever you want, and if the end is good, then God has blessed the means. But that is not, again, what this passage is teaching. Again, the reason I say that, this is something that we read throughout the entire Bible. Over and over again, the Apostle Paul, he said, Hey, as much as it's up to you, seek to live at peace with all people. In the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, Hey, you've heard it said, love your neighbor as yourself, but I tell you, love your enemy and do good to those who do evil toward you. So we're to seek to live good and godly lives in front of all people so that maybe at some point they also come to faith in Christ as well. So we're not to, we're to do good, not seek to exploit people for our own benefit. And when we do get a benefit out of it, that doesn't mean that God has blessed the means because the ends don't justify the means. Even when the end is something that's actually good. If the end is something that's really good, it's not, hey, whatever it takes to get there. Because sometimes I think in our culture, our world today, it's like if the end is good, it doesn't matter how you get there because what you want to see is really good. But the ends don't justify the means. We're called to be people of character. I'll give you an example. So ending abortion would be something that's really good. But bombing abortion clinics... To reach that end would not be something that God would look at and say, hey, you're doing the right thing because of how we are commanded to live. So even like the best thing that we could see come about in a person's life, which would be seeing them to come to faith in Christ, the method to getting there, we shouldn't manipulate people or lie to people that would cause them to come to faith in Christ because what's the foundation of their faith built on? We should trust the power of the gospel at work in someone's life, the simple proclamation of the gospel, And let God do his work, we can't manipulate the circumstances that lead somebody there. So this passage, again, it's not teaching that if the end works out well, that God has blessed the means. The third thing that this passage is not teaching is that it is not teaching that women should obey their husbands in everything. Now the fact that I say that, some of you are thinking, why would I ever do that? Others of you are thinking, why would anyone ever think that this passage is teaching that? It doesn't seem to be talking about that at all. And I recognize that. However, someone might think that this passage could be referencing that based on something that we read in the New Testament in 1 Peter 3, 6. Because it is there that Peter writes, talking about the submission of wives, and he uses Sarah as an example. and He says, Sarah obeyed Abraham and called him Lord. So, if you know 1 Peter 3 6, then you could take that and read it back into this event in Genesis chapter 12 and say, man, Sarah did the right thing. In this passage, she is an example of a good, godly wife because she obeyed her husband. But that is not what this passage is teaching. Now, I recognize I have opened up a whole can of worms. That I'm gonna slowly back away from as quickly as possible. But I do wanna give you just really quick what I think is happening in 1 Peter 3, so that you kinda get the context of this. So, in the context, Peter is writing about a very specific situation of an unbelieving, or a believing wife married to an unbelieving husband. And so he says, hey, in light of the cultural expectations of a wife, for the sake of the gospel, this is how you should live. So he is saying, wives, if you are a Christian wife, and your husband is unbelieving, live according to the cultural standards of, and definition of what a good wife looks like and what that means. I would say don't put yourself in harm's way or anything like that, but live under that cultural idea of what it means to be a good wife for the sake of the gospel so that hopefully through your character, your husband comes to faith in Christ And his life is changed. Now, cultural expectations were different in the New Testament. Cultural expectations were different in the life of Abraham and Sarah. But if I look at this passage, what we're reading in Genesis 12, certainly through the lens of our cultural expectations and the roles of marriage, what I would say to Sarah is she should have said, Abraham This is the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my entire life. Not only are you going to get yourself killed, but you're going to get me killed in the process too. I am not going to do this. That would be reading it through our cultural lens, and I think it would be okay. But yet at the same time, not understanding completely the cultural lens of Abraham and Sarah at the time. We don't have record of her doing that, but yet at the same time, I can declare to you Very clearly, this passage is not teaching that wives should obey their husbands in everything. So it's not teaching that difficult situations call for situational ethics. It's also not teaching that if the end turns out well, then God has blessed the means. It's not teaching that wives should obey their husbands in everything. Those things are crazy. So what is it actually teaching about the life of faith? Again, I'm going to give you three things. First, the first thing that this passage teaches teaching is teaching us about the life of faith is that consistently living by faith is hard. Consistently living by faith is hard. We talked about it last week. When heroes become superheroes, we just these figures are, are become legendary in our mind, and we kind of hit the highlights of their life, and so we think. Well, they never did anything wrong, they were never afraid, they never doubted, and so we think, well, that's what faith really looks like, that's the expectation that I should have for my life, like I should never be afraid, never doubt, never do anything wrong, that's the goal. That's not real. It's not realistic. It wasn't realistic for Abraham, we see the failure of faith here, it's not realistic for us. Because the truth is, as we seek to live out our faith, we're always going to find ourselves in situations where we're not exactly sure what to do, and we might become afraid. Because the reality is, faith and fear, they're not opposites. Faith and doubt are not opposites. But faith and disobedience are. So truly, living out faith is seeking to do what's right, be obedient to God in spite of doubts or fears that we may have. Also, at the same time, recognizing we're probably not going to get it right every time. Just think about Abraham again. If we could go and interview Abraham right after this event, and we were to ask him, hey, Abraham, in light of all that happened, you got all this stuff, all, everything, Would you have done something different if you could do it all over again? I think Abraham would have said, yes, I would do something different. Because when you look at it from the human side, remember we talked about that last week too, the importance of looking at these events from a human perspective. I mean, think about Abraham in this situation. God had promised him land, seed, and blessing. Now he goes and Sarah is taken into Pharaoh's household and he's thinking to himself, what did I just do? Did I ruin this whole thing? And so the, the worry, the stress, he probably didn't sleep the entire time they were in Egypt, thinking that he had really messed it up. See, living the life of faith consistently is hard. And so if we were to have asked, hey, Abraham, would you do something different? I think he would have said yes, but here's the, really the crazy part. Abraham found himself in the very same situation again later, and do you know what He did. He did the exact same thing again. So he let his faith det- or his fear determine what he did instead of his faith. So the reality is living the life, consistently living out our faith every single time is hard. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't try, but yet at the same time we recognize we're probably not gonna get it right every time, and that's why we are so thankful for the forgiveness that God offers to us. First John 1:9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In the context of that verse, it is not talking about the forgiveness that we need so that we can have a relationship with God. It's talking about after we have a relationship with God and we experience these moments of unfaith, that God's forgiveness is still there readily available to us. It's teaching us that the life consistently living out our faith is hard. The second thing I think this passage is teaching us is that we should focus more on who God wants us to be and not so much on what God wants us to do. I find myself thinking this way a lot. It's really easy to kind of end up here. We we face a situation where we're not exactly sure what to do, and so we think, God, what do you want me to do? God, why don't you just tell me what to do? And when God doesn't tell us what to do, we're lost. Like, what do we do? How do we make decisions? But maybe instead of focusing so much on what God wants us to do, we should focus on who God wants us to be and let who God wants us to be determine what we do. So, who does God want us to be? He wants us to be people of character and integrity? People that reflect who He is in all that we do. See, if I I just wonder thinking back through Abraham's life in this event, like if he would have thought to himself, not what are we going to do in this situation, but who does God want me to be in this situation, maybe things would have turned out differently. So maybe we should focus more on who God wants us to be, not so much on what God wants us to do. The last thing, and I will be honest, if there is one thing that this passage is teaching us, this is the one thing that this passage is teaching us. It's teaching us that God will keep his promise in spite of our unfaith. That God will keep his promise in spite of our unfaith. Again, think about the promise that God had given to Abraham. It was a promise of land, seed, and blessing. I'll give you the land, you will have descendants, and then I will bless you. Later on in Abraham's life, we've come to find out that when God first gave that promise of seed, a child or children, descendants, that he was very specifically talking about Sarah, Abraham's wife having a child. When Sarah was taken into Pharaoh's household, Abraham had basically ruined everything. But that's when God stepped in, kept the marriage from being finalized, and it's God saying, Abraham, in spite of your unfaith, I will be faithful to the promise that I gave to you, and I will make sure that nothing happens that would keep that promise from coming about. God keeps his promise in spite of our unfaith. And in fact, that's what we read in Romans eight twenty-eight through 30. It's what those verses are actually all about. Romans eight twenty-eight. that's the famous verse. All things work together for good to those that love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And so we just read that verse in isolation and we think, well, bad things actually turn out good. That's not exactly what that passage is about. Because in the context, basically what God is teaching us, Apostle Paul writes this, but God is teaching us, because we live in a fallen world, there's a lot that could mess this up. In fact, because we are fallen and sinful people, there's a lot that we could do to mess this up too. But God is saying, hey, in spite of all the bad things that can mess this up, I want you to know my promise is going to come about. I will keep my promise to you. Verses 28 and 29, those God foreknew. He predestined. Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. In other words, the end of your salvation is going to come about. Yes, there's a lot that we could do maybe to mess things up. There's a lot that happens in the world that could maybe mess things up. But God is saying, hey, in spite of all that bad stuff, the end of your salvation is going to come about. And so as we think about living a life of faith, we're not going to get it right every time. And oftentimes, because of that, we can think, man, like, what, what if I really messed this up? Or, or could I ever mess it up so bad that I wouldn't even have a relationship with God anymore? But God says, listen, by faith in Jesus, you have eternal life. That's the promise. I give you eternal life. And that's the security that we have, that we could never do anything that would cause us to keep God from keeping the promise that he's made to us. God keeps his promise in spite of our unfaith. That's the security that we have in our relationship with God. And so as you think about it, I know there's a lot of crazy things that exist in the world. A lot of crazy beliefs that exist in the church. But as we finish up this morning, the thing that I want you to understand and know is that in spite of our unfaith in the moments that we're we're not going to get it right, God always keeps his promise, our relationship with Him is secure. Now in those moments of unfaith, do we need to confess our sins? Absolutely. But we know God is faithful to forgive us so that we maintain that relationship forever. That's what this passage teaches us about living a life of faith in the real world. We pray with me, Heavenly Father, I am so thankful. That in spite of our lack of faith, you remain faithful to us. The security that we have because our relationship with you, it's not based on what we do, but it's based on what has been done. Our lives are in your hands. Our, 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 our eternal life is, is based on the promise that you've given to us that by faith in Jesus, we have eternal life. You've called us to live a life of faith, and and, and Father, I pray that you would help us to do that, challenge us to live out our faith the very best that we can, but I'm so thankful for the forgiveness that you offer to us, which keeps us a part of your family. And, And so may that hope and the security that we have in you be what propels us to continue forward. Thanks for the promise that all things work together for our good, that the end of our salvation is going to come about. That's the promise that you've given to us. And may that truth transform the way that we think about living the life of faith out in the real world. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.